everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. This week, though, we have a very, very special treat. We are here in the studio with Morris Spiegel, who's a professor of literature and film at Columbia University and author of Sidney Lumet, A Life. It's a terrific biography. I read it a few weeks ago. As soon as I was done with it, I texted Mike and I said, you got to read this book. And then five minutes later, I emailed the author and I'm so delighted to get a response. We've covered Network. We've covered The Verdict. We've covered Prince of the City. Um, I, I am a great, great admirer of this book and everything that she does in it. And we are thrilled to have you on the show today, Maura. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Let's dive right in. Um, one of the things that surprised me about the book was that Lumetta uh, doesn't make 12 Angry Men until halfway through, right? So I thought, of course, you know, in, if this book were just in the womb of time, oh, of course, the first thing she'll start with is 12 Angry Men. Maybe there'll be a few things about his parents, but it's a long time. It's almost 200 pages until he, he starts that film. But that part was, I thought, really, really, really illuminating. Um, I did not know so much about his background in the theater, especially the Yiddish theater. And then with the group theater and the actor's studio, um, we learned about his relationship with his father, his time in the army, his work on TV, that whole beautifully interconnected New York scene where it seems like everybody was at the parties with everybody else. So you had to make that decision, right? Like you had like, how, how much of this am I going to put in there? Because I'm sure for that 200 pages, you could have done another 200 if you wanted to. So can you talk a little about that, your decision and, and why you wanted so much of the book to be th that part of his life before he started making all the movies that drew us to him in the first place? Well, my first thought about it is a little bit academic sounding maybe, but I was so interested in, Sidney Lumet as a man of a certain generation and background. Um, and that I think in his films, he really, it's almost like someday I feel like anthropologists are gonna be looking at his films. You know, he captures a certain kind of New York personality that really is almost gone, I think today. And, um, and I felt very close to that type and interested in what, you know, what accounted for them in some sense. And um, so I really, and also, you know, the, the worlds he traveled through starting at age five, like just Yiddish radio, I mean, come on. And then, and then regular radio and Yiddish theater. And, you know, he just, he wandered through these fascinating worlds, 1930s Broadway, which was so surprisingly, had these progressive films, these political films. And I mean, sorry, plays and, and, um, and then, you know, early television, you know, just these rich, rich places where, you know, among many, many other things, um, he learned, you know, all of the, he learned an idea about how to be an artist. And his way of being an artist was a little bit the journeyman kind of model and um, a very particular way, you know, this keeping very close to the idea of labor in a certain fashion. So, so there was just an ethic I felt that really does also really run through the way that he makes his films, his decisions and, and the worlds he's interested in um, that, you know, I wanted to get at the beginnings of it. I also felt like um, his family story is so devastating, you know? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't known you know, and I had this great fortune of getting to read his memoir. His unpublished memoir, yeah. Published memoir, which, you know, nobody had seen. And I, 
you know, and, and it ends very abruptly. He doesn't get very far in his life. He just gets to the end of the war. But um, uh, I really feel like, you know, these themes from his childhood really kind of infiltrate some of his great movies and some of my favorite scenes in his movies. So, you know, it took me to certain moments in the films. I mean, um, you know, I guess beginning with Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which is kind of almost uncannily echoes his own family story, even though they are a comfortable family and his family was really impoverished. The fact that he really was, um, he picks up these, these themes at little moments um, throughout his career. And I, and so I, I, I really loved thinking about that and tried to, to, you know, weave in some of that into the book. His politics is formed at a very young age, working with, you know, the growing up in sort of a left-leaning Jewish art world, you know, theater world. Um, people like Philip Loeb, who, you know, blacklisted and committed suicide um, and is represented in the movie, The Front. Um, by Zero Mostel's huge person in Sydney's life, that kind of uh, taking political risk and 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 having that kind of political commitment was deeply moving to him. He tried to run away when he was a teenager to join the Spanish, um, you know, to, to fight with the Spanish uh, loyalists. And and so I, you know that there's so many things. And and I guess you know his Jewishness, which he explored in some of his films. Um, to better and worse effect. <laughs> yeah. um, and then lastly, I just see the contrasts in his life, which begins so early, you know, that he's he's a kid starring on Broadway and riding the subway alone at midnight back to Brooklyn where he's supporting his family. Um, his mother's, you know, really, really troubled ex existence, his father's narcissism. So. Anyway, long answer. No, that's great. His father is a fascinating character in the book. And and uh, to your great credit, as that half of the book was going on, when he finally started making 12 Angry Men, I was so happy because I thought, oh, good. Now the movies are going to start. Like I was already I was already hooked from just the narrative of his relationship with his father and then his later on troubling relationship with his sister. And when he goes to the army and you have the chapter called, uh, you know, eating ham for Uncle Sam and, and all of the political stuff was so well done. And then when the movies start, I, it, it, it was like the, the icing on the cake, so to speak. So that was that was a, a great, great decision I think you made as a writer. Thank I'd love you. to pick up on a point that you made about his artistry, which is, uh, so I love uh, Sidney Lumet's films. Uh, I don't know if you listened to our episode on The Verdict. Um, and I think Network is one of the greatest films ever made, not just by an American or, or by a New Yorker. Um, and I sense a similar technique that has uh, sometimes dissimilar results. Um, you know, I think he made at least three or four of some of the best movies ever made, including Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, he also made something like Serpico and it, 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 which I don't think is as successful a film just as, as a viewer. And so I'm wondering why, when, when you have a guy like him working, even with some of the same actors between Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico, if there's anything going on in his life or, or something that wouldn't be readily apparent uh, to a viewer that would explain um, masterpieces and then kind of more, more muted films. Yeah, I was very struck by your kind of tepid reaction to Serpico. <laughs> I'm actually quite a fan of it. Um, That's a long string joke between Mike and I. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, his greatest films come, you know, come, I think, you know, most of them, mo you know, the rush of them come in the 70s when he's really not in a very happy time in his marriage, running away to his work, perhaps. But, but I think my own feeling is that what happened on Dog Day Afternoon was magic, as he would himself say. I mean, it really was, you know, he always wanted, part of, Part of what work was to him was running away from his sadness about his family. And he tried to create a kind of family in his work, in the workplace, you know, um, and, um, and it really happened with Dog Day, even though he was constantly screaming at all the millions of extras and running around like a lunatic. But that, that, um, that uh, remarkable, you know, just, thing where people click into the project together really happened. And a lot of it was Pacino's, to Pacino's credit in the sense that he brought in a lot of the actors, you know, um, John Cazal and, and, and others. And um, so they had very good, you know, uh, working relationships, but, but um, Sidney went with it, which he didn't, you know, he, it's the only film where he, he let people improvise, you know, he really, believed in writers, he kept, he often had the writers on the set. So, you know, I think it's hard to compare Dog Day Afternoon to almost any film. It's my favorite of his films. And, um, and I, and, you know, but the, the theme in his work of true life stories is to me, one of the fascinating things, you know, that he was attracted to these four true life films, you know, um, and that, he 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 had a more sophisticated idea of of how to do that in Dog Day, partially because it was on television. So he had this mediation of the media there. So there were you know just a million different wonderful strategies that he came up with um, in that film. I think. Yeah, that's a great point because at at some point in your in your book, and I might get the get this wrong, and you'll certainly I hope you can correct me. At some point, you make the you make the claim that his best movies are about people, and you know, they, like the jazz musicians learned, you can't play an idea, yeah, you know, and you can't you can't make a movie about quote unquote an idea, and that his best films are about people. Can you can you talk about that? Like what what you think the, his best films have in common? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is you know his delight in. Um, the things people will do, you know, like, <laughs> don't make any sense, you know, I mean, in some ways, part of the genius of Prince of the City, and I, I think you guys got at it, you know, is that it isn't explained, you know, we don't right. have this wrap up of, you know, what he used to call the rubber ducky, you know, story, you know, like, the, the flashback to the cause of why somebody behaved the way they did, you know, this little flashback that explains everything. And he hated that that convention. And, and I think the the sense that, um, you know, that he loved the, the messiness of human behavior and how that isn't like how it is in the movies. Correct. And part of his real life movies is, you know, like life isn't like in the movies, <laughs> everything doesn't fit together. And um, and I think um, maybe, you know, Serpico fits a little bit, uh, you know, more together. If I can say a thing about Serpico, which, um, you know, for one thing, I feel being of my generation, it was so interesting that he made a hippie cop, a movie yeah. hippie cop in that moment. Cops were not sympathetic characters of that period. And, um, and so that, 
choice was really interesting. And I think his fascination with men at work, with masculinity, with issues of vulnerability, um, you know, it, 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 he's, he's keying into it in that film. And I'll just say my favorite scene in the film maybe is this crazy scene where um, it's the middle of the night and, and Serpico Pacino is, it's just a long sequence where he's, I think he's feeding a cashew or something to his, his parrot, his white parrot. Uh, and I, I think it's a parrot, but anyway, um, and it's just a silent scene and you know his girlfriend is asleep in the bed and he's just grounding himself he's just being this character with no you know obvious reason for the scene and yet it tells us so much about him yeah that's great and that's funny what you said about you know um the idea that you know, the life isn't like the movies and that's what Prince of the City has. But of course, the, you know, one of the great things about network is that life is going to be turned into, you know, a commodified, you know, package that you could run to get ratings. <laughs> network is incredible, isn't it? Um, and, oh, sorry, sorry. Ron. No, that's okay. <laughs> life is, is real life. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, really really amazing that he made such a fabulous he got that tone so perfectly in in network and you know that famous story about him um you know talking to Faye Dunaway and you know and saying and don't try to sneak in any vulnerability I'll edit it out (laughs) right because he doesn't he didn't want what you call the rubber ducky scene for Faye Dunaway Right. He just really, really wanted to keep it in this, you know, and he puts all the emotion, of course, wonderfully into Beatrice Strait's character, you know, the 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 deserted wife and, and, um, you know, so there are, it moves to real emotion from this, you know, from this perfect (laughs) satire, but um, uh, it is, it's an astonishing film. (laughs) Well, now that you've, now that you've outlined for me some of the ways in which he wanted the films to be an absorbing task to take away from family life the the whole rehearsal set up behind uh network makes much more sense i had done some research and found out about uh how they researched in the hotel and all the blocking that he put on the floor and the tape but it 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 makes sense i guess as an emotional project too why you would why you would plan that rigorous a schedule um and the the outcome speaks for itself because i think it's a, a wonderful film yeah, I mean, he rehearsed longer with Network. He usually rehearsed two weeks um, for his movies. But, you know, he would take them to, like, you know, these sites on the Lower East Side, talk about returning to his youth. And, and you know, I mean, there's a great line of, of um, Philip Roth. He says something like, not only can you go home again, you can't do anything else but go home again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, so I feel like that's also a part of Sydney. and. Um, and so, yeah, the rehearsals, and also because of his theater background, and and I think he, you know, his training in TV and all of the technical, really wizardry he he learned in that experience. He he liked to move quickly on the set and keep the energy at a certain pace and all of that. You know, there's that funny story about um, Ethan Hawke and and you know tells about when they were making before the devil knows you're dead. And he said, the joke on the set was they're making the exact same movie on the east side. Um, and the, the, you know, the 
it's a race who's going to get done first, you know. And he and if I remember correctly, you, you tell the story in the book that he he pulled Philip Seymour Hoffman aside and said, "I really think you're going to get an Oscar for this." But then he did the same thing to Ethan Hawke to have him, you know, keep up that level of competition. And, and most of all, compared each of them separately to Marlon Brando. Oh, that's right. <laughs> With whom he had worked, yeah, on the Fugitive Club. You know, Marlon Brando. Yeah. So let's yes, that's that you know that doesn't um, hurt an actor's ego to be compared to Marlon Brando. Um, you know, one of the great things about your book was was it almost made me, you know, come up with this kind of confession, which is that after I finished it, I thought to myself how much I had taken him for granted as a director. So, you know, we've spent, you know, Mike and I, you know, we've spent our whole lives watching these films. And if someone says to you, who are the great directors? You know, I want to learn about film. Who should I watch? So you say all the, the usual suspects, you know, you say, you know, Hitchcock and Ford and Howard Hawks and, and Fellini and all these people. Um, but if someone said to me, well, Dan, well, what about, what about, you know, Sidney Lumet, like, oh yeah, of course, right. But he doesn't immediately spring to mind, and I felt guilty about that. Uh, for and which uh, maybe that was your intent, and if so, it, it worked beautifully. That you know, I wondered how much of your book was an attempt to kind of get him in that 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 circle and get him in that pantheon, um, and why maybe he isn't thought of right away, like the way some other more flashy directors might be. Yeah, I really thought about it a lot, you know, um, and and I think there's a lot of different reasons um you met the the filmmakers that you just mentioned in that wonderful list um are all pretty much signature filmmakers i mean you can recognize their style i mean hitchcock i mean and sure. and lumet actually kind of had a little bit of contempt for hitchcock which surprised me sort of you know that he just does the same thing over and over part of this journeyman kind of idea about being an artist for him um, really was about trying different things and continuing to expand your your capacities. But but I think, and he really didn't like it when you any cinematic gesture was obvious. You know, um, the things that get made fun of in Hitchcock by Mel Brooks and his film, you know, sure. High Anxiety. So that, you know, that, um, uh, so I think partially it's that people don't realize he made all the films he made. You know, like right. who knows that he made Long Day's Journey and Tonight and The Wiz, the same guy made those two films, what? Right. I mean, so there's, you know, there's a, uh, he doesn't, he, you know, he, it doesn't make sense. His, his, And I think about people like, um, you know, Scorsese, who also made a wide range of kind of films, but, but his, he got kind of his name established through a certain kind of film, you know, it seemed to me, you know, you know, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, even though they're, you know, they're separated by other films. But I think that I also feel like, and I, this is just something I'm trying to understand and I haven't quite figured it out. I'm actually writing another book about his films, which is an academic book. So that was part of why I felt comfortable not going, you know, giving half the book to his childhood and early life. Um, but that, that, that there, you know, some of the great Kubrick, Scorsese, some of these great filmmakers really pushed us, and you mentioned Tarantino at one point, yeah. push us into a very unexpected emotional place, moral place, ethical kind of skew, you know, we're askew to our usual moral grounding. And I just feel like Sydney didn't do that exactly, although he complicates morality in all kinds of ways. It isn't 
to sort of shock us into a different. Anyway, I don't know yet. No, I correct. I mean, you, you are, he is much less um, self. Uh, I don't want to say, a, you know, self not self-congratulatory, that's the wrong phrase, but when you watch a Scorsese film now, at least certainly the ones he's done in the last 20 years, you, you know it within five minutes that it's, he is as part of the experience as the actors are, but, but Sidney puts himself in the background, so to speak, and, and kind of like, he doesn't want you to think about what he, that he was there, whereas when you watch a movie like Goodfellas, which we love, you're always aware that you're watching a film, if that makes any sense. Mike, you were going to say something? Yeah, he has a very self-effacing talent. Uh, and I think it's it's really interesting and telling for, for what you just said. I know, for example, David Mamet wrote the screenplay, but in the beginning of the verdict, the alcoholic thing that Frank does to establish himself is kind of tilt as he's playing pinball, which is kind of the, that's kind of the joke, right? With And you can see the glass on the window and the light coming through the, the window and the glass, you know, and the, the stumbling and the other stuff is established later. But the, the that early establishing shot says, this is a man lost. This is an um, the Lost Weekend or some other kind of film about about alcohol. Yeah, yeah. There's a crazy story about pin, pinball with Lumet, which is that he he used it as a kind of I don't know what to call it. Sort of he play he would play pinball in the morning, and if he did well, he thought it was going to be a good day. <laughs> he that yeah. it wasn't in the yeah. wasn't in the mammoth script. Right. Um, I didn't know that. It's a, such a strange, I, when I came across that, I was completely thrown. It, it, he's so un, he's so unsuperstitious. And so, you know, anyway, yeah, it's a surprise. Um, anything that you would, anything that you would urge upon us as we wrap up here, urge upon viewers, like, you know, what are, what are some of the, um, the films that don't get as much attention that you think deserve a second look for all the film fanatics out there? Yeah. Gosh, I really, you know, it's hard because I, I like so many of them, but I would, I, I'm a big admirer of Daniel, which really, you know, was a victim of the wrong movie at the wrong moment for reasons I won't spend time going through. Um, I also, you know, know lots of people who love Garbo Talks, like just on the, on the, on the down low. I think it's a wonderful film. It also speaks to his early life. It's this film that is about pleasing mama yep. and that, you know, was so impossible in his life. Um, I think, um, you know, Running running on Empty also is a wonderful film. Um, going back to The Pawnbroker is never a mistake. Um, and um, and I think, um, yeah, that, that those are some of the ones I would suggest. Yeah, sure. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. We, we enjoyed so much speaking to you. Um, thanks for being on. We, we would urge all of our listeners, please get a copy, pick up a copy of, 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 um, of, the, of the book, Sidney Lumet, A Life by Morris Spiegel. It's a terrific, terrific read. You won't put it down. It was so illuminating. And like I said, it, it's great even before he picks up the camera to start his work on 12 Angry Men. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.